everybody else is saying about all the DIY projects they're getting on with and like, oh, they're going to take the time to decorate the living room or paint the garden fences. And I'm just there literally with, yeah, feeling like I'm holding up a house of cards that's just about to collapse. The house immediately got more disgusting, more disorganized because the children were home all the time. And I also had to become a teacher, which really, really is not my career of choice and never has been. Welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. Before starting, I'd like to read this review from the Apple Podcasts app in Great Britain. This review is from Lee UV, and it's called Healing and Helping. Thank you so much for putting your time and knowledge and energy into this podcast. I stumbled over this gem and it felt like a revelation to me. Thank you so much. As I've said many times, I love getting these reviews. I am a podcast junkie and have been for years, and I will say that it honestly never occurred to me before to review a podcast after I was listening to it. But now that I see how much they mean to the person creating them, I leave them all the time. I didn't make that connection until I was binge listening to Tracy Outsuka's podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women, after I was diagnosed. And she actually spelled it out for me. And she said, pause, go to the podcast app and just do it. Just leave the review. And I was suddenly like, oh yeah, it's that easy. (laughs) And so I did it. And now, of course, I realize sometimes with ADHD, you need a little bit of handholding and you need to have things spelled out for you. And I really appreciated that. So I am asking you to do the same for me. Just pause right now. I'll wait. And go and give this podcast either just five stars or simply write me a quick review, letting me know that you're out there and you're listening and you like this podcast. And that's it. No essay length comments are required. No brilliant soliloquies, just a simple, hey, great job or something like that. Thank you so much. Okay, here we are already at episode 21 In this episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Carrie Mead. Carrie is a music obsessive, book obsessive, social butterfly, and escaper of responsibilities. Carrie has attention deficit disorder. She's a full-time single parent and a registered carer to her oldest child who is autistic. When she isn't busy with all of that, Carrie is a writer and a music editor. She writes about parenting and neurodiversity, politics, relationships, and all of that other stuff too. I reached out to Carrie for this interview after stumbling upon a really powerful essay she wrote for the Everyday Magazine in the UK. The article was entitled, I Don't Have Depression, I Have Attention Deficit Disorder, The Frequent Misdiagnosis of Women. And there's a link to that article in the show notes. I highly recommend you read it. I was really struck by the piece. I so related to her experience, especially as a woman who was misdiagnosed with chronic depression and anxiety for more than 20 years prior to my own ADHD diagnosis. Carrie and I talk about being mothers and the struggles that we've faced with the domestic duties and the guilt and feelings of being a failure. We also talk about how easy it is for mothers to put the work in when it comes to our kids, but not necessarily for ourselves. Carrie is from the UK, and so we talk a bit about the National Health Service, the NHS, and some of the current hurdles to getting an ADHD diagnosis right now. The wait list can be years for some people. So I found that really interesting, and I hope you do too. And before we get started, I have to warn you, for the first time with one of my interviews, I got so excited to start talking to Carrie that I forgot to hit record at the beginning. Frankly, I'm surprised this doesn't happen to me more often. So I wanted to let you know that this episode starts about five minutes or so into our conversation, and Carrie is telling me about her son Sam's diagnosis with autism and how that awareness led to the beginning of her own journey and her realization of her own neurodiverse mind. So it starts rather abruptly, and that is why I really apologize for this. Enjoy. So it took us two years to get a diagnosis, and the I learned a lot about neurodiversity in that time. So I came into this realisation about myself already being quite active in the neurodiverse community 
and having done a lot of research myself. But it's funny, I never, ever would have thought 10 years ago that I was neurodiverse at all. I would have laughed if someone had said that to me. <laughs> so it's it's been a journey. <laughs> and um, so what were some of the things that led you to deciding what were some of your own symptoms that led you to think that this was something you related to um I think for me it was when I had my daughter she's nine now but as she started growing up um everyone has always said right from the very start of her life how much she is like me she looks like me apparently um with we were very, very similar characters, even as toddlers. And as she started growing up, I started to notice in her that I thought that she may have ADD or ADHD symptoms. And I was then faced with the realisation that if she did, because we were so similar, there was a strong chance I did. So I actually came to it through my daughter, mainly uh, which has been really interesting journey. And she's actually, um, she's waiting for assessment at the moment. And we've got her appointment next Monday to see a paediatrician for the first time. And I've told her that we're on the same journey together. And she feels really, really positive about it. And will actually actively tell people, me and my mum both have ADHD. That's wonderful. So... Yeah, it is. And I've always, always with my son as well, I've always tried to instill a sense of pride in their neuro, in his neurodiversity. That was one of the main things I wanted to do. I did not want to let it destroy his confidence in himself. So I need to do that myself now <laughs> for myself. <laughs> and so how long ago was this that you sort of really kind of the light bulb went off that you could have ADHD and then started looking into it for your daughter? How long has that process been going on? Um, with my daughter, I started having, I started thinking she may do when she was around five years old, but uh, our lives at the time were very, very different for what they are now. They were a lot more difficult. My son, when he was younger, he was really, really struggling with his mental health. Uh, he wasn't getting on in mainstream school. Uh, he was uh, suspended constantly. He was very violent. We had social workers involved. And it felt like I didn't have the energy to even think about looking into Ruby's ADHD. I physically didn't have the energy. I'm a single mum as well, and I've been single since um, Sam was three and Ruby was a baby. Um, so it kind of got put on the back burner. I, I couldn't even consider thinking about it for myself. I was very much like a lot of mums. I need to look after the kids first. But then I started meeting people from neurodiverse community through my son because I used to go to support groups and a lot of parents were in the same boat as me. Through their children, they were beginning to realise that they were undiagnosed with autism, ADHD, dyspraxia themselves, you know, things like that. And I began to notice that it was almost like you attract neurodiverse people to you if you are neurodiverse and I began learning loads I used to laugh a lot about the fact that I had traits and then one of my very closest friends whose daughter went to school with Sam and has now herself got a diagnosis of ADHD and PDA um her mum became one of my very close friends and she sat me down one day and she said, I'm going for a diagnosis of ADHD. Kerry, you need to do the same. And I kind of brushed it aside because it felt like I wasn't important enough to actually bother going through that process. And then just... A year ago, I had a cancer scare. I went into hospital. Um, I had a total 
rectal hysterectomy. I had a very large tumour removed from my uh, ovary. And um, I thought I, I thought at one point I was going to die of cancer. And then I had a month of recovery on the sofa. And then literally the day after I first managed to get out of the house, we went into lockdown in the UK mm. because of coronavirus. So I was kind of forced into this space where I had a lot of time to reconsider my life and realise its value. And to realise that I was worth pursuing that diagnosis and it was worth me actually doing it um, so that I could change my life because I don't think I'd realised until I had that time to stop actually how much undiagnosed ADHD or ADD, I don't know which I am yet, I think I'm probably more ADD, um, had affected my whole life. And I had space and time to go through that grieving process and to realise it and realise that I didn't have to carry on making the same mistakes or living life in the same way. So it's been very, very recent for me. It's only been in 2020, really, that I've embraced it, that I've realised that I deserve a diagnosis and I deserve to learn how to live my life differently. Oh, so <laughs> That's so well said. And I think something that I certainly relate to, I'm sure a lot of women mothers relate to that. You know, I've interviewed some women who have young children. You know, my kids are 13 and nine. And so I'm, mm. I have a lot of gratitude that I feel like I am just starting to focus on my own <laughs> mental health on a level that I wasn't able to, you, you can't, yeah. when you have these no. balls of need clinging to you all the time, you know? And so I just like, oh, I feel so much for women who have the younger children and are going through that, like we said, like just feeling like you, you have to put yourself last. It's not even like you're making that conscious choice sometimes. Like it really feels like a survival method, you know, uh, of, yeah. of putting yourself last. And I'm like getting all choked up because I just like, I remember that feeling so strongly. And I think, mm. um, you know, you talk about this, I guess we'll just, you know, talk about the article that you had written. Was it in September? Um, yeah. The article about, uh, I don't have depression. I have ADD. And it's obviously, it got a lot of attention. It was why I read it and reached out to you immediately because I just like so viscerally related to it. Um, in terms of that feeling like, you know, not only looking back at your whole life and, and, and seeing things through this different lens, but also seeing that like glimmer of hope for the first yeah. time and sort of really feeling like my life is starting anew in, in a way that is really, really difficult to articulate. Um, and I think you did such a great job of, of questioning. So many of us have gone through a lifetime of depression and anxiety. And it's been mm. kind of, that's the shelf that a lot of these feelings have been put on. Yeah. And, and to, to then look back and say, like, you know, it bothers me when people talk about co uh, comorbidity, when they talk about depression and anxiety as a comorbidity of ADHD, because I just don't feel like that's how it feels to me. You know, I feel like mm. the medical community, the mental health community looks at depression and anxiety as um, as like a, a, a chronic physical condition on its own. And, mm. and, and they don't they treat it like it's a condition as opposed to it being a symptom of something else. And I so totally agree. Right. Yeah. And, I, and yeah. So when I was health, when I was going through my health coaching training, they talked about this, the thumbtack, uh, the thumbtack method or, you know, and, and the fact that the medical community will look at, you know, if you go to a doctor and you have a thumbtack in your ass and you're like, my ass hurts. I don't know why the doctor will give you painkillers and then send you home. Um, and then, you know, it's up to you to figure out where the pain is coming from and then how to remove the thumbtack. And that's how it sort of felt like when I had this ADHD diagnosis where I suddenly had the power to sort of look back at my own, my own lifetime of, of depression and anxiety mm. in this way. Like I felt suddenly like, oh my goodness, I can actually do something about this as opposed to constantly feeling like I was just tripping over this just cycle of always going back to the the same place yeah I know and and I used to view it as a weakness mm. in myself somehow that why 
do I struggle so much with life when other people don't? Why do um, you know? Why do I keep getting depressed? Why do I keep getting stress and anxiety symptoms? Why and is the medication not helping as well? I always felt like it didn't really help that much. I mean, I um, I was last on antidepressants. So I actually only came off them in the summer uh, for five years. And they did help at first because I was I was on the verge of a breakdown when I started taking them. But I never actually felt like they did what they were meant to do. I always felt like if I'm this bad on medication, imagine how bad it'll be off medication. That was what I always <laughs> yeah. thought when I felt like they weren't yeah. working. <laughs> yeah. And I used to feel like I used to feel as well like I wasn't really depressed as the textbook said I should be. I wasn't suffering from anxiety as the textbooks and the GP said I should be. They always felt like something a little bit off. And now that I've realized that the anxiety, depression, panic attacks, the stress were a symptom of masking, a symptom of not understanding myself. I can see now why I always felt like a little bit of a fraud saying that I was I had depression or I had anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's been a massive revelation. It's been and I'm, I'm not saying I'm cured now of ever, ever having um, periods in my life where my mental health isn't so good. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has <laughs> meant I'm at quite a low point at the moment, but. I think that I will be much better prepared and able to deal with them now because I know their roots and I have another toolkit for how to make my life feel better, mm-hmm. which is approaching it as a neurodiverse person rather right? than just a person who can't cope with life. Right. So, yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think, and then I think about what a benefit I will be as a mother to my two children, (laughs) not only (laughs) as just a happier person who who doesn't carry around all of the shame and guilt that I felt like I brought to every situation and always was in this Mm. default of like, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm a terrible mother. Mm. You know, like I can, the difference in my own self-talk just in the last few months has been radical. And so I think about, you know, not only does that make me a better partner, better mother, but then like, you know, both of my children Neither of them is diagnosed yet just because I'm so newly diagnosed. Um, yeah. And also the pandemic, I'm like, I'm not interested. <laughs> you know, the battery of tech, like there doesn't seem a ur- sense of urgency to it because I sort of feel like mm. I'm able to help them and and view situations in a way that is going to be helpful no matter what, whether they're diagnosed or not. And so I'm just sort of seeing like all that I'm bringing to the table now for the first time, whereas I never used to be able to Take see that. Me. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was. I mean, I was one of those um, children that was considered really, really gifted at school as well. So I had this extra layer of shame around how how I managed not to actually achieve much with it. Oh yes. Um, and that actually starting to work through that and getting rid of that has made me so much less bitter, um, happier, lighter, freer, just realising that, yeah, I I was gifted, I'm still gifted, but the reason I could never show up, that I could never actually get my work in, that I always did the minimum amount possible, the reason why I actually got nearly kicked off my degree course and nearly kicked out of college was because that I was at fault, that I'm not a bad person. I know why now. And that is really, really helping me with with my life now. As in, yeah, my house is an absolute tip, but it's not because I'm lazy or incapable. Um, You know, sometimes I do lose my rag. Sorry, do you know what that means? (laughs) Sometimes I lose my temper with my children, but that, (laughs) that doesn't that doesn't mean I'm a bad mother. That means right. that I'm under pressure, that I'm neurodiverse, that of course parenting when you're neurodiverse, especially parenting to neurodiverse children, is quite a lot of hard work. As a know. single parent, absolutely. Yeah. 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 That grace, having that grace with yourself is just, oh, it's like such a sigh of, of release. And, and um, yeah, it's been 
It's funny because, you know, there's these things that I feel like should have occurred to me a long time ago. Like my house is a disaster and I and I don't mop my kitchen floor. It doesn't make me a morally corrupt person. Like I just don't give a crap. Like I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) And why did I I carry so much, you know, guilt around that? Yeah, but the, the thing that I've been exploring a little recently in my thoughts is that not only is it an ADHD issue for women, Um, with these feelings of guilt and failure around how well they keep their house and how well they parent. Um, It's a feminist issue. You know, it's so much of what we are told we should be doing as a woman gives us our worth. And women who are neurodiverse often struggle with being able to do those things. So we're constantly telling ourselves that we're not... We're not we're not proper women if we have piles and piles of laundry in the corner of the bedroom because we forgot to put them away or we couldn't face putting them away. Um, that you know that we struggle just with managing all of the household admin and all of the emotional load. It it we tell ourselves that we're failures, but also we're fa- we then become failures as women, mm-hmm. which. I think I'm not saying that men don't struggle with these issues, but I think for women with ADHD, it is a lot worse because so much of our self-worth is based around how good a mum you are, how well you keep your home, how well you look after your husband or your partner. And I think that that puts so much more stress and pressure on neurodiverse women than maybe our male counterparts put on themselves and Mm. feel from society in general. And why so many of us kind of lost our shit when when lockdown happened, (laughs) because we had this house (laughs) of cards, really. I mean, we had this house of cards and we were just keeping it together. And then all of a sudden a wind came in and blew it all down. And we were just like, I give up. I don't know. Like I I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. It's, Oh my God. So the, the craziness of last March and April. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the house just went to pot. Everybody else is saying about all the DIY projects they're getting on with. And like, oh, they're going to take the time to decorate the living room or paint the garden fences. And I'm just there literally, with, with yeah, feeling like I'm holding up a house of cards that's yeah. just about to collapse. The house immediately got more disgusting, more disorganised because the children were home all the time. And I also had to become a teacher, which really, really is not my uh, not my career of choice. It never has been. Right. <laughs> you brought, you yeah. brought up an interesting point earlier about being a childhood, mm. being gifted and, and feeling as though you had, you know, I always talk about like my report cards and how it always said I wasn't living up to my potential and feeling mm. really resentful, even at the time, sort of feeling like if I have this potential, nobody's nobody's articulating what that potential is to me. So how come you see it? What is it? And, and mm-hmm. you know, for you to accuse me of not reaching this potential, how can I even reach it if I don't even see it? And so you were saying like, as a child who had, who was labeled as gifted, and I was too, like, there's a sense of like the fact that you've been, you've been bestowed these gifts and you have chosen to squander them. And, <laughs> and totally, I, totally. Right. And so, <laughs> yeah. And so you're, so you feel this sense of responsibility that you've chosen to squander these things. You know, it's like the the responsibility has been placed on you and yet you don't know what to do with it or what these things are. You can't even see them. And I think that really kind of brings forward, especially as women, when you started talking about women and the perfectionism and and mothering, you know, there is this sense of, I think that not only this perfectionism, but I think there's also this like sense that you are in control, even though you've you're at the wheel, even though you've never driven before, <laughs> you know, and, and, and feeling like somehow you're, you're not only do you have these enormous responsibilities, but you're intentionally squandering them. Yeah. And not even, totally. not even feeling like you prepare, you know, why we always have these, I never studied for the test dreams. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's been, it's been a huge player in my life. Um, just the sense of failure. And yeah, I thank you for saying that. Um, the, the feeling of I've having, having squandered my life in some way. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a single mum. I don't work at the moment, really. 
more than about 10 hours a week I'd say I do a lot of writing for myself hey, I was gonna but... say that's there's paid work and then there's what you're doing which is yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I'm I'm a registered carer for my son um I sometimes wonder whether I'll ever be able to work a full-time job again because I don't feel like I could actually fit that in maybe once I've got a diagnosis or I'm on medication it might be different but I do feel like I've squandered a lot of the chances I've had in life and that brings up a lot of feelings of shame that I, I'm still working through I'm still struggling with um I just always remember when I was at primary school so I would have been about eight or nine there was a really popular tv program in the UK at the time called this is your life and it was basically um it was like a surprise party for a very famous person towards the end of their life so they'd go and like sneak up on an actor or something like that when they're coming out of the theatre and they pull out this big red book and say come with us to the studio this is your life we're going to bring all these people we've known you all through your life and basically have a big party to say how great you are on live TV. And I got a report card that said, if there is a student that I've ever taught who was going to end up on This Is Your Life, it's Kerry. And I know that it was meant, it came from a really heartfelt, positive place, but that has haunted me. <laughs> you should have ended up on this is your life it's haunted me and yeah. I still it makes me feel now like a failure like I have squandered everything and it has added this layer as well of like feeling like I need to be perfect at everything which has been a massive struggle through my life as well mm-hmm. and fed into that whole rejection sensitivity dysmorphia you know dysphoria yeah yeah, sorry, Dysf- Dys- dysphoria. Sorry, I can't I know. speak. Lot, I've just <laughs> there's there's a lot of terminology to to acquaint yourself with when you're in the neurodiverse yeah. community. There is, yeah, um, yeah. You know, the other thing I was reminded of with your essay uh, was mm. I really related to that moment when you were lying awake in bed thinking you were dying and going and that going to your mom and saying, you know, I think I'm dying. And I was curious, I was like, I wonder, cause I've certainly felt that I still do. I mean, I certainly, my mind goes there when I'm lying awake at night, I wake up in the middle of the night, I have a headache and clearly I have a blood clot and I'm about to have a stroke and who do I call first? And I don't even know where mm. my checkbook is. You know, it's like, I don't know where my passport is, how it like, it just, it goes from there. And I like I'm like curious if there's a connection between ADHD and hypochondria because it makes sense in that same idea of like all the things we've talked about in terms of feeling like confused, feeling like you've been betrayed by your brain, um, you know, betrayed by your body, betrayed by your mm. thoughts. Um, I'm curious. I don't know. I have no, I'm just thinking of it off the top of my head, but I'm like, I wonder if there is, if that's a similar uh, phenomenon. Yeah, I think, I think the thing is, because I wouldn't say that those feelings of thinking that I was going to die were coming from so much hypochondria. They were more from having severe panic attacks Mm. and actually feeling like I couldn't breathe. Um, I'd never say I've been a hypochondriac, but it's it's funny. I was having a discussion with uh, another woman who's going through the same process as us at the moment. She's in her late 40s and she's... um, She's coming to terms with the fact that she is neurodiverse. Um, I'm going to be interviewing her for my book, but I'll come on to that in a while. Um, And she definitely sees herself as being a hypochondriac. And I feel it it ties in so much of anxiety. Mm -hmm. Um, It ties in so much with maybe feeling too much, being very in your head, um, being very self-aware, aware of what's going on in your body, that maybe neurotypical people don't necessarily struggle with so much. So I think it's a really interesting question um, mm. whether the two are linked. Uh, I don't know the answer, but it'd be interesting to see if anybody else does, if anybody else has looked into that, because I, th- I think it could be a distinct possibility because... You know, ADHD people are very anxious. They're also 
quite a few neurotypical people, they, um, you know, they have sensory processing issues. They feel things mm-hmm. that maybe other people don't notice yeah. going on, you know. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah. Raise your hand if you're really good with your diet for a few days or weeks, but you always end up sabotaging your own efforts. Or you fear having certain foods in the house because you feel like you lack the self-control to avoid them when they're there. Or you feel like everyone but you has this whole eating and exercise thing figured out and you just wanna scream, what is wrong with me? Well, guess what? You are not alone. In my book, Worth It, a journey to food and body freedom. I share with you my own history with yo-yo dieting and binge eating from my very first diet at the age of 14 to the nearly 30 years I spent on a merry-go-round of weight loss and weight regain. I also share with you the six essential steps that helped me to finally break free from diet culture and rediscover my health and my self-worth. If you are ready to break free from dieting and binge eating cycle for good and heal your relationship with food and your body, head to worthitwithkatie.com to get your copy of my Worth It book today. The, um, so I grew up in Canada, so I grew up with federalized, yeah. federalized healthcare, public healthcare. Yeah. And I've been, but I've been living in the U.S. for 20 years. And don't get me started on on the U.S. medical system. I mean, it's even now <laughs> to see so many people who are here struggling because, you know, you have to. It's a cost. It's a cost analysis every time you do anything regarding yeah. healthcare. You know, you have to decide: Am I going to pay for to see my primary care physician? Am I going to pay my? I have. We have insurance. We have great insurance. But I, when mm. I my doctor prescribed Vyvanse. And with my insurance, it's costing $50 a month for me to get that. I mean, that is really cost prohibitive yeah. for a lot of people. And so, you know, mm. the fact that you're always taking your mental health, your, your mental health has a price tag. Your health has a mm. price tag on it in the U.S. Yeah. Ridiculous. Um, so I, I'm curious, talk to me and talk to our North American listeners about the NHS mm. and why is it taking so long? Or why is this pro- process so long and and so many people in the UK seem to be in the situation that you're in yeah so um in my local authority area for the NHS um before the pandemic it was a three-year wait to see a psychiatrist for uh, the in their adult ADHD team it's now at four years so I was only referred in September uh I can't wait four years (laughs) You know, the thought of it is crazy. But, I mean, why are we in that situation? It's a really complicated. It's a really complicated situation. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's it's a lot to do with the NHS is on its knees. It's been driven there. Um, we've got a very conservative right-wing government. Right. Uh, we, we have done for quite some time. Um it doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. And one of the things that this government keeps telling us is that it isn't going to sell off the NHS. But I think a lot of us know that it is probably going to happen and they're trying to dismantle it. This might sound a little bit like conspiracy theories. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's it's well accepted that we are seeing the death of the NHS at the moment. It's being run into the ground. It gets lambasted in our media constantly for its failings, but it's um, it's not being looked after. It's, not, it's having its funding cut at every turn. Little sections are being sold off one by one. For example, one of the first um, parts of the NHS that was sold off in my local area was children's mental health services was sold to Virgin about four years ago. Virgin so, as in? Um, Richard Branson's Richard, Virgin. Okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Virgin Healthcare. So, I mean, we, we still don't have to pay for it, but it's being managed by a private company now, which is separate from the NHS. So 
It's, I mean, the NHS is one of the best things about the UK. It's amazing, but it's also one of the least nurtured things in the UK at the moment. And obviously the pandemic and the way that it's being handled in the UK at the moment, which is very similar to how it was being handled by Trump, um, is a massive worry at the moment that... um, the NHS isn't going to survive it and we're going to be in the same position as North Americans in a couple of years' time and having to um, pay for our healthcare. It's a, a real worry. So part of me feels like I'm angry that I've got to wait four years, but the other part of me, I can't blame the NHS because I know what they're up against and I know people who work for them as well and I know how difficult it is to be a part of the NHS at the moment. But um, one thing I'm pursuing at the moment is um, trying to get a private diagnosis, but funded by the NHS, which is a possibility. But it all depends on what the current funding stream for your local authority area is looking like. So I've got a conversation next week with my GP to see if they'll consider applying for funding for me to have a private diagnosis because I'm planning on returning to uh, university in September to study a master's in creative writing. And I feel I've got a good case because I'm going to need some support Mm -hmm. around my disability by then, which I won't be able to access without a diagnosis. So... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah. All right. (laughs) I'm still reeling from the fact that you're going back for a master's (laughs) for you. Um, All right. So more. Yeah, I think I'm mad, actually. I'm wondering why I'm doing it, but I feel like I've got to do it. (laughs) It's my time to do it. (laughs) Well, no, that's a great explainer for that ADHD (laughs) sense of like, I call it building my empire. <laughs> like, you know, I can't every week I'm like, what what crazy scheme am I fully 100% invested in this week <laughs> that I had never even heard of last week? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so speaking of how prolific you are online, mm-hmm. uh, you run your blog, but you also tell me about 19 stories. I'm very fascinated with this project. It seems like such a a passion project seems so heartfelt and so lovely. And um, how did you sort of, what was the idea for that? And how has it been, how has it been kind of evolving over the past year? Um, Well, it's a good, it's a good example of how my brain works, actually, this, uh, (laughs) this story. (laughs) So um, I, I'm an editor for a magazine called The Everyday. I'm a music editor for them, but I also write opinion pieces for them. And um, I pitched that I was going to write a piece about um, relationships under lockdown. So this is back in kind of April time. So I put a little call out on Facebook. Just um, does anybody want to talk to me about... um, how they're getting on being single or being coupled up in lockdown or whether they're struggling with missing somebody, um, which is the situation I was in in the t- at the time. So I'd just come out of a relationship shortly before I got ill. So at the end of 2019. Um, and I had so many responses, but not just from people who had in, had a story that was relevant to my article, but people just messaging me because they just really wanted to say what was happening for them at the time. And that night, I led in bed with my brain whizzing. I'm sure you know that worm. Because <laughs> I had this amazing new idea that I wanted to set up an archive an online archive where people could tell their stories about what's going on for them at the moment, because everybody, I was just like, everybody's got a story and everyone's got a really, really valid story and a really interesting story. This is affecting us all in such different ways and are, you know, and everyone's going through it. So literally I hyper-focused for about a fortnight on setting up this website, on pushing it, on getting people to get in touch with me. I interviewed people. I spent hours writing up the interviews. I had people um, getting in touch with me just with 
photography projects, artworks they were working on. Some people just emailed me like a paragraph, like heartbreaking paragraphs. And so I started putting together this website and telling people stories. And they could be anonymous if they wanted as well. I didn't want people to feel embarrassed about what they were saying. So I've actually had quite a few anonymous ones. And then um, it got picked up by the local newspaper, um, had quite a lot of interest. And then it just stopped. (laughs) (laughs) People, People didn't really want to tell any stories anymore. I was really struggling with getting people to actually... Um, submit stuff or they said they would and they wouldn't follow up on it and I've never been very good at pushing people you know to say come on come on you said you were going to put in some writing can I have it please that's the boring part (laughs) I know Um, so it's been quite quiet on 19 stories recently Um, I've still got it there I still think it's really really valid and there's some beautiful pieces on there and there's some really interesting things that have happened to people and they've shared Um, and it's one of those things at the moment that you know, my ADHD brain is that I really need to sit down and give this some nurture and love and attention, but there's always a new shiny spangly project lurking Mm. around the corner. (laughs) And I feel really bad about it. And I feel like I need to really push it, but it's almost like I've kind of reached a point with it where I know that it could really take off if I marketed it more and I, I plowed some money into it, but at the moment, I feel quite stuck at it. Although I know so many more people out there have got a story to tell about the pandemic. So yeah. if anybody, anybody at all wants to drop me an email. <laughs> I will put a link. To, yeah, I will put a link to it just because mm. I think people should read the stories. I think it's such a lovely project. Even if it just sort of ha- has come to an end, it's still, I think it's mm. such a lovely thing to have out there. It's been such an incredible 2020 was such a crazy year <laughs> and oh you know my one, gosh, yeah. I think it's interesting to me how something as universal as grief can be so isolating at the same time you know I remember when my mother passed away it was like the first time you know where I really felt how lonely grief can be and I found it interesting mm. too just where I was like it's something we all go through I mean we all lose somebody we love who's close to us and yet how yeah. can something that we all have experienced make you feel completely isolated from everybody else and I think we experienced mm-hmm. that a lot through the COVID lockdown and and all all of the stuff that has gone on in that in this past year it's forced us all into a corner hasn't it is in we have to face ourselves mm-hmm whatever's going on for us I remember I remember sat we had a really in the UK we had an unseasonably hot spring so even in March um when we first went into lockdown I was able to sit out in a deck chair in my back garden and enjoy the sun and I remember sat there and it was so silent no planes I live in a large city there's usually planes going over all the time and I remember thinking I really, really should be learning more about myself now and take and going inside. But I don't want to. I don't like being forced to do that. And we were. We were all forced to take this big, deep breath and really do a lot of work on ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think it's brought up so many different things to so many different people. Um, I mean, luckily for me, it's brought up the fact that I've got ADHD. Yeah. <laughs> which seems to be um, going okay at the moment. So, <laughs> uh, yes, in the grand scheme of things, I do feel like I, I have gratitude for a lot of the kind of dominoes that fell into place that led to this diagnosis. But yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. I, w- I just wish I'd got it earlier. I wish I'd known. I really do. That's my biggest regret, is I, and my biggest grief is that I wish that I had known because I feel like I would have been a lot a lot kinder to myself I've been made different decisions and I would be in a lot better place than I am now you know oh, yeah yeah I feel like I've a lot of women I have interviewed we do talk about that element of that the grief and the resentment and mm. just kind of what to do with all of that to feel like this life that you're now looking back with this new lens and thinking sort of what could have been 
completely. So, on a more positive note, what do you what do you love about your ADHD? Where you look back and you think, ah, oh, yes, of course, that was ADHD. Oh, what do I love? What do I love? Um, I really, really love um, how I think differently and view life differently. And I've kind of like haven't settled down. I don't intend to ever. (laughs) You know, um, I feel like I've got quite a young head on my shoulders. And I think that that's possibly got quite a lot to do with curiosity and um switching out new things new sources of dopamine possibly (laughs) (laughs) but I think it's a really positive thing um for me anyway um I've always it was not so much a positive thing at school because I always felt different I couldn't put my finger on it but I think it's driven me to rebel it's driven me to examine the world and look at the world in a different way to not stay static you know even though as a mother especially with young children you have to kind of hold fast for quite some time and I did struggle with that um I feel like I'm always going to keep on looking for new things I think that's great and I really like the flow I get into when I'm hyper focused on something um I like my talents I do feel lucky to have them even though I've squandered them I still feel lucky to have them um I've still got enough time left as well to actually make some use of them um and it's almost like quite a few of the things I love about ADHD they've got their negative side but they've also got the kind of um silver line the silver lining around the cloud like the intensity of my emotions I mean it's it's been a real struggle throughout my life but that has had a positive as well because I feel like I've when I experience happiness I really experience happiness you know none of my feelings are ever dulled Mm -hmm. yes I I feel as though uh, one thing that has changed for me when we were talking about kind of the self-talk and the grace with which mm. you look at the grace with which I look at how, why I'm doing the th- things I'm doing. I am now able to be much kinder with myself when I need to just um, like, uh, you know, relax. <laughs> it's much easier yeah. for me to relax because I think I used to have so much trouble relaxing because I felt like there were all these things I was supposed to be doing and now I'm like, no, I need to kind of unwind because I was just hyper-focusing for three days. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm much, I'm much yeah. easier on myself when I spend a day, you know, doom scrolling or lying on my phone, you know, lying on my couch on my phone, or, you know, these one, these days where I feel <laughs> me- like incredibly unproductive. I'm sort of like, no, this is a necessary kind of re reboot. <laughs> Yeah, I haven't quite got to that stage yet. I still beat myself up. I still beat myself up about being glued to my phone. I've still mm. got a, I've got a huge, huge Twitter problem at the moment. <laughs> I spent hours on Twitter. It used to be Facebook, but I've um I've Facebook was becoming really negative for me, um, especially politics. So I've kind of pulled myself off of Facebook now, although I still need it for work. Uh, but I still beat myself up about spending too much time on social media. I still beat myself up about my house being a mess. Um, I, I still find it difficult to relax. So that's that's my next project, <laughs> is to get to the point you're at. <laughs> uh, now, on your one of the links at the bottom of your article that you the essay that we've been talking about that you had written for the Everyday Magazine, you had mm-hmm. mentioned Neurotribes the book Neurotribes that you had recommended that and it looks really fascinating and it's not one that I often see on sort of the top 10 lists and recommended books can you tell me a bit more about that book it's called Neurotribes the the legacy of autism and the future of neurodiversity which just sounds so awesome oh it 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 is such an amazing book so I was recommended it um years ago when I first realized that my son may be neurodiverse that he may be have autism and I won't spend ages going into that process now and what it's like um but uh, another parent of a 
autistic child said, you need to read this book. It's just come out. It's fantastic. And it's by a guy called Steve Silberman. He's American. He's a journalist. And he spent years researching the history of autism. Um, doesn't mention ADHD much in it. Um, it's more focused on neurodiversity um, and autistic people's experience of it. Um, he looks at history of it, the social and cultural history, and moves into um, why it's good to celebrate neurodiversity and about a lot of the um, very much based online support there is now for neurodiverse people from their peers and actually raising themselves up and being proud of it rather than it being medicalised and seen as being something that needed to be um, trained out of them or hidden away. And it was, it was so inspiring. It was so inspiring. Because at this time, you know, autism, neurodiversity, they were all very new to me. I thought that everybody who was uh, autistic was like the Rain Man. That's what I thought, you yeah. know, like like the rest of the population um, before I was plunged into a world where I had to learn more about it because it might all of a sudden my child may be autistic. So I can look back now and I can see what I did. I hyper focused on autism for ages. I learned everything I could about it. But that book in particular, it for me, it really, really represents how people should see it as a positive and not all negative I mean obviously there's negative things there are negative sides to being um, neurodiverse you know we've we've touched on them haven't we today you know with um, a lot of mental health issues and self-esteem issues but there are also a lot of positives and um, I think people need to remember that yeah whether they're neurodiverse themselves or whether they they love someone who is that is such a great point. One thing I have a lot of gratitude for in my own kind of research journey since since being diagnosed and uh, the more I understand about ADHD and the more I realize it's not this sort of isolated neurodivergent, um, you know, whatever the word is I'm looking for, tick, <laughs> you know, that it's, it's, yeah. it's on this much larger spectrum of neurodivergence and, and how we are, you know, how fluid that spectrum is. And so it's really sort of totally. opened up so much more of my own understanding about autism because I hadn't really had the inclination to do much research. You know, I hadn't been personally, hadn't been personally affected by it. And so I didn't really take mm. the time to understand it. And so it's sort of a nice byproduct of my own research into ADHD is really sort of understanding autism, it's sort of like, you know, the gender spectrum, which is like, you know, yeah. we sort of used to operate in these very like containered male, female, you know, gay, straight. And now it's like, why is everybody queer? Why is everybody non-binary? <laughs> it's not like it's, it's not like it's just happening it's that we sort of opened up this this spectrum and everybody mm. falls in some spot you know in this much larger yeah. spectrum and so I really appreciate totally. how much my own understanding of this in, immense incredibly amazing community um and where you know where we all fall in it and how supportive everybody seems to be for now yeah <laughs> I mean I can't I haven't got my article up in, and I have, can't remember the exact phrasing I use, but I kind of, the, you know, sort of like all of the um, sort of neurological conditions like um, autism, dyspraxia, ADHD, I, I kind of liken it to they're all huddled under the same umbrella, you know. And I, I actually ended up um, lecturing my daughter's GP um, doctor about <laughs> <laughs> You're saying about self-diagnosed people have done a lot more research than uh, quite a few general practitioners. Um, you know, because he was going through a questionnaire with me about um, Ruby's symptoms before he was put through um, a request for her to be assessed. And I said, and yeah, and she's got terrible sensory processing problems. She's really sensitive to loud sounds and light. He went, well, that's autism, not ADHD. So mm. I ended up going into this huge spill with him about it. They're all so intrinsically linked. You can't turn around and say that it's not 
a sign that she may be neurodiverse. Yeah. Because it doesn't, it's not, it is a spectrum. It is a spectrum. You know, it's not these little boxes like, oh yeah, you're dyspraxic, you're ADHD, you're autistic. Quite a few people will actually find that they have got, um, yeah, using the term again, comorbidities or dual diagnosis, or even just being able to relate that, yeah, I'm ADHD, but I can really relate to some of the things that come under the autism umbrella. You know? Right? Yeah. And, and I'm glad you brought up uh, auditory and sensory um, issues as well, because I never would have thought I had sensory, any sort of sensory issues or any sort of auditory processing mm. issues until I really started looking over my life. And it was sort of like, oh, right. I can't brush my teeth with my eyes open. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, noticing these things that I'm like, oh, right. Yeah, I do have quite an interesting re, you know, reaction to certain sensory and auditory, auditory issues. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm sure that a lot of I'm sure there's a lot of neurotypical people who will say, "Oh yeah, yeah, but everybody has that." But it's how often you have it and how many examples you can come up with. You know, like I don't really suffer from sensory stuff, but one thing I can't stand—I cannot stand anybody putting anything in front of my face. Yeah, I feel claustrophobic. If you know, I can do that, but if somebody else does that to me, I just freak. You know, and it's um. Yeah, horrible. That's not that's not just the only thing. It's the same. I'm beginning to realise now that there's quite a few things that mean maybe I have got sensory stuff going on. You know, yeah, right? (laughs) It's fascinating. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm I'm so enjoying talking to you. I was really looking forward to this conversation, and you did not disappoint. So, (laughs) oh, thank you, thank you. I feel like I could talk all day, and I was worried how I was going to fill the hour. Actually. So how can people find you online and how can people more importantly support you online and in your journey? Ah, okay. So um, I've got a blog, which I um, is unloved occasionally, but I do put quite a lot of my writing up on there. And that is called, it's on WordPress and that is called All Life Less Ordinary. So you can find it at alllifelessordinary.wordpress.com. Come and have a look and have a follow. Still haven't got a Medium page. That's on my um, my huge long list of things to do that I look at and, and feel sick oh, I know. <laughs> every time I look at it. Um, now, I'm on Twitter. Um, my uh, handle is Kerry underscore 689 it's not very snappy but um I wasn't feeling very snappy when I uh decided that I was gonna have a quick look on Twitter you know about a decade ago and then didn't use it for three or four years um so you can follow me on there um one of the things I am doing at the moment and um if you follow me on Twitter or um follow me on WordPress um is I um planning on writing a book actually telling the stories in in more of a kind of um in-depth or creative way of women who are neurodiverse and how their lives have been affected by that especially if they didn't find out until later or especially if they were told that they had um mental health disorders instead so um that's something I'm really excited about and um yeah basically watch your space I find it really interesting how the some of the most interesting and elevated voices within the ADHD community are coming from people who often are not elevated voices in in a lot no, of No, I agree I agree I mean I'm I'm white um I'm privileged mm-hmm. you know although um you know, obviously I've had my struggles like a lot of people, but that's one of the things I want to do really with writing my book. I'm privileged that I can write as well and I can express myself in that way. Mm, um, good point. I want to be able to tell people's stories and tell people's stories um, that have had a very different experience to me, but there are those common threads as well. So yeah, I'm... Um, 
I'm just casting around, doing my research and uh, finding women at the moment who's, um, who want their, want their stories told. So Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include mm. that. Yeah, I mean, this is really, this entire podcast is an excuse for me to reach out to women who I think are cool and, and have an intentional <laughs> conversation with them. Oh, well, great idea. <laughs> Uh, so thank you again for your time. It's been so lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. It has you. Oh, it's been lovely. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. Also, as you know, we ADHDers crave feedback. And I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review over on my website, womenandadhd.com or on Apple Podcasts, or Audible, or whatever other platform you're using. And if that feels like too much, and I get it, then just take a few seconds to give me a five-star rating. Boom, done. Or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this neurodivergent superpower, and they may be struggling and they don't even know why. Make sure to tag me on Instagram or Twitter. I'm at women and ADHD. If you are a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood and you'd like to be interviewed as a guest on this podcast, please reach out to me. My email is womenandadhdpodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to know more about me, head over to worthitwithkatie.com. That's where I help other women with ADHD break free from the yo-yo dieting and binge eating cycle for good. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who has recently discovered that she is not lazy or crazy, but she has ADHD. And now she's on the path to understanding that neurodivergence and finally using it to her advantage. Take care till then.